0: Hey everybody, Dave Lindbergh in Hong Kong with another episode of THD Podcast. Today we have a company named Greenwaves joining us uh, from France is where they're headquartered. And they've got an edge processor doing a lot of things on low latency and uh, using some interesting methods to uh, process some uh, things on the edge. So we're going to find out about that. But before we forget, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, the Alti. Association, the Audio with Loudspeaker Technology International, a great networking company for people building speakers and systems and promoting components, all that kind of thing. It's a great organization to get involved with, so we encourage people to do that. Now let's get into it. So Simon joining us from Japan. How are you doing this afternoon, Simon? Good, well, thanks, Dave. I
1: have to admit I didn't do my homework, so I have no idea what Green Waves is at the moment, so starting <laughs> as a blank sheet, this will be interesting.
0: That's kind of the purpose of this podcast is to allow people to get a, a, an introductory presentation to Cool Audio Tech. So Martin Kroom, VP of Marketing from Greenwaves, how are you doing uh, this morning for you? Great, thanks,
2: David. Good morning.
0: All right. And are you in the UK or are you in France?
2: Uh, I'm actually in France, just close to Grenoble uh, in France, which is where we're based.
0: Okay, very good. So, yeah, uh, GreenWaves, I mean, I, I previewed the technology a little bit. It does look like an edge device. I hope I didn't butcher that. But perhaps, uh, how about now is a good time to get into a presentation to tell everybody what it's about.
2: Great. Thanks, David. So, I'll go into a little bit about um, GreenWaves and about um, our, our, our processor, GAP9. Um, so, GreenWaves is a seven-year-old uh, fabulous semiconductor startup. We're based out in Grenoble in France. Uh, we have about 40 full-time staff, about 10 consultants, so about 50 in total. Um, and really our focus is to sell, um, uh, design and sell um, um, uh, high-performance processors, but for energy-constrained devices. And that very much plays into hearable type devices. Okay. Uh, we also have some offices in um, Bologna, Italy, and we have a sales office in Shanghai, China. Um, but we also have uh, sales agents around the world. Okay. Um, our, Our Bologna, Italy office um, is actually just next to uh, the University of Bologna, and we have a very strong relationship with a couple of universities, the University of Bologna, uh, and also with ETH um, Zurich, uh, which is a university in Switzerland. Um, And they jointly have a program um, called PULP, which stands for Parallel Ultra Low Power. Um, And we have a very strong uh, affinity with that program, which is actually producing a lot of open source designs. And so we have a very strong open source background to what... What we're doing which is quite unique in the semiconductor industry okay. um our first product uh, gap eight has been in production since 2020 um was one of the first um uh, commercially available uh, processors using something called risk five uh which is a new instruction set architecture um you can think of it as a bit like the ARM instruction set architecture or the Intel um, x86 instruction set architecture. It's a new one, and, and what defines it is that it is open source as well. It's in fact an open spec um, because uh, an ISA is just a, a piece of paper. Um, and it was also one of the first uh, commercially available um, microcontrollers that started to look at how to do uh, artificial intelligence, um, so um, neural networks in 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 small, um, very low-power uh, MCUs. Okay. Um, our next generation product is, is called Gap9. Um, we have silicon back. We're starting to ship this to customers at the moment, um, and we expect to be in production in uh, 2022 um, in Q3. Um, and that's the product that I'm really going to talk about uh, because that's the product that really expands us into the hearables market.
0: Okay.
1: Is that also this Risk Five? Based yeah, absolutely. It's, it's based on RISC-V. It's really
2: an evolution of the architecture. It's in, in, in kind of two, two ways. Uh, one, it's on a more advanced process from a semiconductor perspective. Uh, and secondly, there's a lot of architectural improvements. And there's also some really new stuff, um, particularly around audio and low latency audio. So, um, Does that, so
1: uh, does does that RISC-V spec or this instruction set, does that actually govern the physical uh, chip design? No, not at all. No, RISC-V is just basically, well, you could say that it, it, it
2: can actually cause a change in the way that you do the design, because it's. It, but it's really just what are the instructions that the processor will understand? What's the format of those instructions? Um, and then one thing which is unique about risc Five is that risc Five allows you to actually, f- firstly, risk Five is very modular, um, has lots of different kind of um, um, sets of instructions which are optional. Um, And the the spec itself um, explains how to kind of switch on and switch off, you know, say what you have actually implemented of those optional specs. Um, It goes one step further, which is you can also add your own instructions in, again, in a standardized way that the Um, You know that the runtime platform can query and understand about the processor, Mm. Um, and that means that you can have a very modular compiler architecture, which allows you to kind of switch on and switch off these different instruction sets. Um, It's used now by, um, I think the last count I saw was that over four hundred members, you know, significant, um, you know, um, chip producing vendor members that that are. Uh, signed up in in RISC-V, it gets used hugely in deeply embedded designs where you don't actually even see the processor that's there. You know, so if you wanted, pretty much now, if you need a, a you know some kind of controller core inside a chip that you're making um, that's not going to be exposed to a customer, uh, you would use RISC-V. I mean, it, it it makes total sense. So you can just take a core, and then the cores which implement those uh, the, that um, spec. There, there's um, lots of them, um, lots of different core designs, and a lot of them are open source as well. Um, and, and the one that we use comes out of this Pulp program um, and um, is, is open source. It okay. um, um, has also actually been taken up by uh, something called the Open Hardware Group, which is also kind of doing a lot of verification work around that core um, uh, and improving the quality of the core um and that's really the advantage of this open source stuff is that all of these eyes go on to the same thing you know it's the same thing with yeah. with open source software you know you get lots of different eyes looking at the same piece of software so the quality is greatly improved mm. and and also the second thing which is very interesting is is that an isa is essentially as good as the tools that are around it yeah. so um if there's a lot of companies using an isa then you
1: start to get a lot
2: of traction around the tools and that makes the tools good
1: Yep. Yeah. The, uh, just because you uh, were on top of the open source aspect of it, is, is, there, is there a factor that you uh, insulated from patent wars type of problems with open source? Um, well,
2: I mean, if you think about what a semiconductor company is doing, it's always doing a certain amount of integration of different, um, you know, portions. There. So, I mean, there's, that, that's always a, there's always this problem of, 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 a, of a potential uh, lawsuit around that. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion around that. Um, I'm not sure it makes it more risky. Quite yeah, frankly, yeah. I'm not sure it inter- increases the risk. Okay. Okay. Um. So our markets, um, generally, um, with Gap Nine are really around kind of three different subjects, which is low latency DSP. So kind of digital signal processing on signals which are sample by sample, um, which require extremely low latency processing. So you can think of things like, um, NC as being classic thing that requires that. Um, and then, kind of general digital signal processing algorithms. So, general kind of either um, frequency domain, time domain um, digital signal processing, combined with neural network loads, and and potentially also some traditional machine learning. Um, we can we can support that as well. But 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 generally, that's kind of what we see. And and inside products, which are range from IoT devices. So that's a very broad IoT is a very broad. Mm-hmm. Um, statement, but it can go everything from kind of intelligent sensors, which are, are interpreting richer data like camera images, uh, radar, human signals, things like that, to kind of, you know, doorbells or something of that sort of, uh, some more sort of IoT product. Um, then through wearables, so things like smart glasses, um, particularly, um, you know, um, not so much the very high data rate, you know, kind of smart glasses with, with um, video stuff happening. Um, but more um, you know things which need to be more power efficient Um, and then um, uh, hearable products so everything from earbuds to professional audio to headsets uh, to professional things which need to you know do very deep noise suppression and all that kind of stuff and then within that we're doing um, you know a number of different things which kind of combine these technologies together so either, you know, kind of pure NN things like, you know, data interpretation, like scene detection, um, object detection, face voice ID, um, but then also things like transformation, things like denoising and effects and so on. And then through things which are more hybrid, you know, like they're a mix of, of kind of traditional DSP or low latency DSP and NN like, like um, perhaps having an ANC system which is steered or adapted by uh, a neural network. Um, uh, or using beamforming with neural network technology, which, which, is, which has been greatly explored. And then kind of pure DSP things like spatial audio, and all of these trying to run them as efficiently as possible, but also giving a large range of flexibility to the person developing these algorithms.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, so if I kind of like summarize GAP9 in a nutshell, it's basically a combination of these things. So it's, it's three kind of processing tasks, uh, real time, uh, streamed autonomous time domain digital signal processing. And there we have something in which we, we call a smart filtering unit, which is a quite unique IP developed by us uh, that's inside the chip, which does that um, and, and does a great job of, of providing a large amount of flexibility in that task. Um, Then uh, a general digital signal processing, and there we use something that we call a cluster, and I'm gonna go into a little bit more about what that is. Um, Mixed then with highly flexible neural network processing, so there we have the cluster, which we also use, and also a neural network accelerator that we call NE16. Um, All of this done at extra low power, so really focused on energy constrained devices, so we're not consuming watts, we're not consuming hundreds of milliwatts, we're consuming uh, single-digit um, milliwatts or maybe two digits in milliwatts down to, you know, um, tens or hundreds of microwatts. Um, and then really flexible and really as easy to program as we can make it. Obviously, an MCU is, you know, embedded de- the processor is is, is, is always going to be a challenge to pro- program, but, but we try and make the design as homogeneous as possible to make it possible to, um, you know, really have a fast time to uh, being able to, to, to program. the thing. Um, and then all in a, a very small component that can fit into these kind of devices. So it's a 3.7 by 3.7 millimeter WLCSP package, which can be um, integrated into these kind of hearable devices. Okay. So here I'm kind of like diving into deep architectural stuff, but I'll try and keep it quite high level. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, GAP9 is kind of like a a combination of two things. On the left-hand side, it's kind of like an MCU. Um, uh, There's a core, which we call a fabric controller. As I said, these are all RISC-V based. Um, So we've enhanced the RISC-V ISA uh, with a number of things very specific to our kind of workload. Um, So that includes things like DSP-type operations, so things like um, hardware loops, um, saturation, max, clipping operations, all of these kind of things. Uh, Then we include a bit manipulation engine inside each of the cores. So we can do things like bit shuffles and pop counts and so on and so forth, uh, which is very useful for a lot of algorithms. Um, And then we have a lightweight vector unit, which is inside each core. um, So that can process 8-bit or 16-bit vectors. Um, And then finally, in GAP9, and this is an evolution versus GAP8, uh, we include something which we call transprocitional floating point unit. And so this is a floating point unit that can handle um, 32-bit floats, but also 16-bit floats, so IEEE 16, and also BFloat16, which is a format that's heavily used inside the neural network world, uh, because it it, it, it um, keeps the um, exponent of the Float32, so the, the range is actually the same, more or less the same as the Float32, but obviously losing a lot of precision because you've only got 16 bits. Um, so the, the, the mantissa is much, much, much shorter, but the exponent is maintained in terms of its range. Um, that's then combined with a memory area, um, with um, you know, RAM and flash, uh, what's in fact EM RAM, so it's a flash equivalent, um, so non-volatile equivalent, um, and then combined with a very smart um, um, peripheral controller that essentially can do a lot of things autonomously in terms of managing peripherals. Uh, and manages um, DMA channels per peripheral. In fact, the the peripherals almost manage their DMA channels themselves. Then we have a very rich set of um, 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 interfaces, including um, uh, an audio interface, in fact, three serial audio interfaces with up to 48 channels, uh, total uh, TDM channels coming in through those interfaces. with master-slave capability, lots of clocking options, and so on and so forth. Um, And then also per audio SAI interface, we have three PDM in and one PDM out per interface. So there's a lot of audio um, input and output capability there. There's also, as you can see, camera interfaces, which can be uh, integrated for external cameras as well. the, the, this this peripheral controller, we call this a micro DMA because it's kind of like a programmable DMA unit, but it goes a bit further than that because it can also actually do kind of transformation of information on the fly. And one of the things that's located inside that micro DMA is what we call the smart filtering unit. So it's really close to the interfaces. So actually the smart filtering unit can autonomously process interface to interface. So you can take something in over a PDM interface, for example, decode it, sample by sample process it the moment the sample arrives and send that process sample out over another PM interface, uh, PM output. But also the SFU can be used to transform information as it's coming into the the memory. So it can can write into our L2 memory area, which is uh, the big block you can see there. Um, And it can also take stuff in blocks from the L2 memory area and send it out to an interface. And it also actually can process memory to memory. so. Um, it can be used as a kind of um, um, offload processor for for um, um, uh, for audio uh, time domain um, filtering tasks. Then on the right-hand side, we have this thing which we call a cluster. So what's the cluster? It's kind of like a calculation engine. Uh, so it actually has nine uh, RISC-V cores identical to the first Fabric Controller core. And in fact, all of these cores are not only identical, but they have the same memory map. Which means that if you can compile a function, you can run that function anywhere on any one of those cores, and it will run identically. The only difference will be the speed that it has in terms of its access to memory. Um, and this is a real advantage in the sense of being very homogeneous. You have one compiler, you program the thing in C. Um, you don't you know drop down to assembly code or difficult things like that. It's a very, very classic architecture in terms of in terms of programming it. So all of those cores have Um, Very fast access to a shared uh, L1 memory area. So when I say very fast, that means um, single cycle access to that, that shared L1 memory. Um, And, and then those cores are actually managed in terms of all of the synchronization of those cores in hardware. So when we fork a task out onto those cores, it's done in hardware when there are synchronization primitives like uh, barriers or things like that it's all handled in hardware which allows us to be very fine grained about the things that we can paralyze on that on that structure And then we combine that in with this NE16 um, AR accelerator. So that's really focused on accelerating things like convolutions and linear layers, matrix operations and things like that. Um, And when it can't do something because it's a dedicated piece of hardware, so it always has limitations versus a processor, we can take over with the the cluster. And I'm gonna talk a little bit how that's a little bit different to a classic DSP architecture and and what difference that makes. Then finally, all of the memory movement in terms of data in the chip is organized um, using these dma blocks there's no data caching in this chip at all and that allows us to have an architecture where um, um, we, we're really ideally suited towards a streamed workload where we know exactly what's going to be moved around in terms of sizes at compile time all we need to to, to do is fill different stuff in um, in the blocks that we're moving around. And we have a number of really sophisticated software tools that allow you to manage doing that kind of um, work, which even to the point of actually just generating the code for you for managing all of this data movement across the architecture.
1: Okay. So this is um, uh, <clears throat> just a quick question, if, if you don't mind just going back one slide for a second. If yep. um, you're talking about the SFU can uh, do, perform some operations on memory, so passing through the DMA channels, yeah. Uh, what, uh, up to what point? I mean, what are we talking about? At what point does it become a uh, main processor job as opposed to an SFU job? The SFU is really optimized. Well, I'm,
2: I'm going to talk a little bit about the SFU on the next slide. But but okay. the SFU is really optimized around um, processing sample by sample audio filters. So okay. think of quads and FIRs and things like you know that kind of stuff. Um, so if if your task that you want to do fits into the uh, the, the concept of an audiograph and a sample by sample audiograph, even you know with multiple different clock domains and so on, and so forth managed within that graph. Uh, then the SFU is the perfect thing to do that, and because the SFU is really a peripheral, it's 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 something which you set up with the graph that you want to execute, and then you start it and it goes on working. So when it's given samples, it will take them in and process immediately and spit out. Um, right. Because it's working like that, it allows it to be very power efficient. Because you know, it's 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 not a, a processor that has to ins- load instructions or do things like that. It's optimized around this task, very very low latency. So down to um, you know, it can it can process in kind of classic ANC filter structure? It can process um, 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 a single sample in uh, under one point three microseconds. So it's 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 down to that that and that's essentially um, you know, real time at 768 kilohertz. So yeah. it's, it's, it's taking in a sample process, doing the, the physical processing on it in real time at 768 kilohertz through yeah. a quite complex audio graph.
1: Yeah. Um, I see. So, so, it, so, it, uh, so it's based around if you, if you only need to deal with one number.
2: Yeah, it's than, basically, it's, uh, based, well, it's based around if you need to deal with the stream of numbers, huh? because there's no num- okay. stream of numbers. Now, if you have a block, you know, like a block of samples that you want to process through it. You can load that block of samples into the L2 mm. memory area. You can point the SFU at it and it will load them in and it will spit them out to another buffer, mm. it will spit them out over an interface, whatever. Mm. Um, and it will also tell you, you know, the event, hey, I need another buffer uh, and so on and so forth, you know. So it will keep running until it finishes doing that. And really your benefit is going to be you offload the processor for doing something else. Uh, you do it at very, very low power. Um, and then, obviously, if you're doing an interface to interface, you do it at a very,
1: very low latency between yep. those two interfaces. Yep. And um, <clears> then, <throat> in terms of memory, so you, the diagram shows 128 kilobytes shared memory. Uh, to send in the, the
2: cluster, ad, yeah. Pardon me? In the cluster uh, L1 memory zone. Yeah, yes, that, yes, yes, yes. So pure... the actual RAM of the L2 is 1.5 megabytes, oh, which it. is okay. over here. Yeah. And there's also two megabytes of the uh, non volatile EMRAM.
1: Okay. It's actually a
2: lot of RAM. Okay. Then we also actually have an external memory bus. Well, yeah, it seems like a lot until you start doing neural networks. <laughs> <I see. laughs> yeah. And then uh, it's, it's sometimes not a lot. Um, right. Then we have, we have an external memory bus, which is switchable between HyperBus, Octo, or QuadSpy, or SDIO. Um, and in fact, um, in the WRCSP package, we expose one of those, but the chip, in fact, has two. Um so we have some other package options that we're looking at that that expose the two mm. um, and that memory any of the memory you know this em ram or that external portion can actually be mapped into a virtual space of the l2 in inside the chip memory um, mm. buffered through the l2 so you can you can essentially have a kind of um, virtual memory system mm. it's it's a fairly you know rudimentary virtual memory system but that allows you to execute pages of code in place yep. um, inside the
0: and uh, you mentioned that your everything's programmed in C. Now, this is kind of more general uh, question on the state of affairs with processing. But, uh, you know, historically, going down to assembly would make things a lot leaner and faster. So is that kind of a non-issue to the benefit of people able to easily code in C nowadays with your uh, on the cluster side of things? Yeah, I think, I mean...
2: In kind of classic processing, um, a compiler is probably going to do a better job than a programmer optimizing. Um, right. Until you get down to some very, very specific kernel, that um, then, for example, I'll give you uh, give you just an example of that. Um, you know, when we're doing kernels which are using the vectorization capabilities, uh, vectorization is an interesting compiler problem, um, and there's certain instructions where the vector optimizer is probably not going to get to it. Um, um, for example, we have an 8 bit um, uh, four, four by four uh, dot product. So it's eight, uh, you know, four times eight bit vector times a four time dot a four times 8 bit vector. So if you think about that, that's four multiplications as 4 max basically, mm-hmm. with an accumulation into 32 bits. Um, so that's actually eight ops that are happening. Um, it's quite a deep thing for a, for a compiler to optimize to. So we've actually implemented built-ins in GCC. So you, you can just use a built-in. So you, don't, you still don't have to go to uh, assembly, but you can use a built-in and the vector capability that's inside GCC to actually express that you want to use that, 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 that instruction. So in that kind of case, yeah, we, we dropped down to that. The only place where I think we actually get down to assembly code is in certain bits of certain OSs. But that's really because we're manipulating. It's like context switches and things like that. So it's 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 really pretty deep. Otherwise, no. I think I think a compiler probably does a better job. Yeah. Um, and unless I, you're really considering a very small piece of code.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think for support and commercial deployment, allowing people to use that versus finding a dinosaur that can still do assembly is is a lot easier. Yeah. Okay.
2: I must Thank admit, you. we we still look at the assembly that's generated by the compilers to check that we're not doing
0: something silly. So. Right. Okay.
2: Um, so I, I've kind of mentioned a little bit about what the SFU is. I'm going to be quite high level about it. Um, essentially, it's, it's kind of a, a number of different resources, which are hardware resources that can be combined into an arbitrary graph. So it's actually a very general purpose device um, that can be used in a lot of different scenarios. The, really what we designed it around was, was ANC. Um, and there it delivers both excellent structural latency and excellent power consumption. Um, and complete determinism. So it it can, it can run between two interfaces without being disturbing disturbed by anything else happening on the chip. Very good observability so you can observe all the points in the graph. Um, but it can be used for loads of other things and people are already starting to explore how it can be used for things like heavy YouTube filtering, for sound spatialization, for effects, mm-hmm. for things like that. And one of the interesting things is that it's dynamically reconfigurable on the fly. So you can actually have multiple graphs running in this. But also it, on an individual graph, you can reconfigure the coefficients um, without stopping the graph um, with a number of different um, strategies to do that, to avoid glitching. Um, and that provides a very interesting idea of combining this with neural networks. So I'm going to talk a little bit about you know, how you combine, say, a classical sample-by-sample filtering structure uh, with a
0: neural network. Okay.
2: Um, Just to explain the cluster in terms of parallelization a bit and and what's the difference between, you know, kind of a classic um, SIMD type, um, you know, approach, the cluster is lots of cores, right, but they have free running program counters so they each of the core is is running on its own. and the only synchronization that's going on is handled in hardware, so we can we can synchronize very, very, very um, at a very fine grained level. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we fork something out onto all the cores, we can do it in under four cycles. Um, when one of the cores perhaps has finished what it's doing, hits a barrier, um, which is kind of synchronization primitive. Then one cycle later, it's clock gated. When all of the cores hit that in that barrier group, hit that barrier, one cycle later, they're already started started up and 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 running again and that's really important to get the fundamental thing that we're searching for with parallelization which is speed up how how much faster can we go but the interesting thing is we don't use that speed to actually go faster what we use that speed to do is return the is reduce the clock speed of the of of the processor which in turn allows us to reduce the core voltage and that gives us a quadratic benefit in in energy Um, so we use dynamic frequency and voltage switching heavily inside the chip, so you can, you can dynamically change the core voltages and, in multiple different domains. For example, when you're not using the cluster, you switch it off entirely, and it's not consuming. Um, the other nice thing about having these free-running cores is that you can, you can have a number of different approaches to parallelization. So for example, if you have something like um, a bicord filter, where essentially you know, the next step depends on the step before. Uh, where well, it's clearly not something you can just like split the data up and set a core to, you know, work on separated data. Mm-hmm. Um, there we can start using kind of pipeline structures um, where essentially the cores have a lightweight semaphore implemented in hardware um, that essentially is synchronizing them and you kind of pipe stuff through the cores. Each one's, the first one handles the first sample and then it's passed to the second core which does something else to it and so on and so forth. Um, and obviously you can mix these together. So you get really powerful structures that you can bring in terms of, um, um, uh, you know, benefit here. Okay. Um, what
1: would be the this, advantage of that pipelining?
2: So essentially, um, if you have something where the next step depends on the previous step, then you cannot, you cannot use the divide and conquer approach to to yep. paralyzing it. Right. Um, but what you can do is you can pipeline it. Um, so essentially you can do, you can handle the first, um, stage of the biquads um, in the first, um, process core, the second in the second core, the third and the third core. And that will still give you a speed up because in a sense you're handling a pipeline of samples, right? So you, you need to, or a pipeline of blocks of samples potentially in this case, because the sample by sample processing, you've probably done it in the, uh, uh, in the, in the SFU.
1: And um, um, so, oh, oh, I'm curious, how how uh, what makes that faster than a single core just running these uh, operations in sequence?
2: Because because essentially, your your um uh, if you were a single core, you'd be in a loop handling each stage of your biquad, right? Yep. Uh, cascade. If you if you if you're yep. if you're in a single process, then your loop around, right? Oh yeah, I got so you. Your got loop is okay. expanded onto the cores. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Okay. Um and. And that's very different to the classic dsp approach um and the classic dsp approach you know have kind of vliw approach where you 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 um you try and let the compiler schedule um parallel instructions okay and then put that all into one big long instruction word which is loaded and then executes but that assumes that the compiler can fill that instruction word um which is often not the case so it's often the case that there's there's not 100% efficiency there. Whereas with the cluster, these, these um, synchronized but free running calls, um, it's, it's it's much easier to, to schedule stuff onto them. And if they get desynchronized, actually there's a benefit in that. Um, if those things get desynchronized, then probably they're gonna access the memory with a different pattern, which, and in fact, the way that the memory architecture works tends to desynchronize them. Um, so you get much, much better Cycle um, power efficiency, um, uh, doing that, and um, we've 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 done some tests. We have a um, um, a an implementation of the LC three codec, which we did from from the specification, um, and uh, this we've we've implemented on the cluster. So we've parallelized it. Uh, we've done a parallel implementation of it, um, which we release out um, to our customers open source, um, and. Um, um, we've compared that with, with um, a classic DSP architecture running uh, that uh, LC3 codec. And we and we come to figures which show us um, using two times less cycles and three times less power per operation, uh, giving an overall benefit of six times less energy running that, that LC3 codec inside mm-hmm. the, the cluster. And then we combine that, as I said, with this NE16, uh, tightly cooperating with it. So when there's something the NE16 can't do, the cluster does it when something the NE16 can do, which can reduce the energy of doing, you know, the big filter operations, then we use the NE16. And then finally combining that with the smart filtering unit and its processing capability, um, which, which is a very high precision sample by sample processing capability. Again, all of this is kind of parallel processing capability that's all It gives you a huge amount of of, um, processing power that you can apply to the problem. Um, That isn't something you're going to apply all the time because otherwise you'd be draining the battery. But but what it does give you is some some ability to accelerate, you know, to have some room on the accelerator pedal so that when you have multiple simultaneous real-time things that need to be happening and you have a kind of peak point, which is very awkward for you to manage from an engineering perspective, you have the power to be able to just power through that, essentially. Um, uh, and that makes the engineering of this kind of, you know, hearable product much, much easier.
0: Mm. Okay.
2: Um, so so the most interesting thing for me is, is what our partners do with this, you know, so what gets done uh, uh, with GAT9. Um, and, um, you know, we're a processor company. We're not a software company. Uh, we do a lot of software, like most processor companies, because we do a lot of tools uh, to allow our process to be used efficiently. Um, but, but, but really, fundamentally, our, 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 we're not experts in special audio. We're not experts in ANC. So we we reach out to partners that that that, that are, um, and uh, they work with us to uh, port their stuff on to, onto onto Gap Night. Um, so we've got a number. I'm not going to go through them in, in in great detail, but but a number of partners that have been doing great things with, with Gap9. Uh, one, Iden Audio, uh, um, they're, they're doing uh, work on spatial audio. So uh, rendering real time um, um, spatial audio using um, um, an IMU to track head um, uh, movements um, in real time and then re-rendering the audio in real time. Um, in, in um, so that's a kind of example of, of one of the things that can be done on, on these kind of platforms. Um, a partner AuraSound, based out in France, um, uh, they're doing a number of different things. Um, um, ANC um, with AI-based um, um, steering of the ANC. Uh, they're also doing work on um, AI uh, noise reduction um, and, and, and really working on, you know, these kind of like really low um, power consumption um, 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 signal improvement um, um, uh, architectures. Um, then we have we have a company called Sagosha. Um uh, They're doing doing a very interesting um, thing using Gap9. Uh, they've already ported one element of this. Um, this is essentially a, a technology where they're they're cross correlating uh, brain signals, so EEG signals, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, separated audio. So you separate um, some speakers in audio. Um, so obviously you, you do some kind of beamforming to separate those. And then they have a, a technique which allows them to use a neural network to um, figure out from those from your brain waves which of those separated audio signals you're actually trying to listen to, uh, and obviously from that, then allowing you to enhance that. Um, oh, that's... So this is a great example of of using neural networks and a combination of neural networks and sound processing to uh, um, process stuff. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like
0: the old Beatles recordings, you could find out which channel people are focusing on. Yeah,
2: (laughs) this is is, is actually just, you know, if you're listening to multiple speakers, you Uh separate the speakers inside the device and then you cross-correlate between the speaker signals and the EEG signals and allows you to select which of those different channels you're trying to listen to more than the others, which obviously allows you to enhance and pick up that one some more.
0: It could be also interesting for training or you know, people with hearing disabilities, helping them to focus, or all kinds of other attention-focused, uh, mission-critical type uh, applications. That's that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, there's,
2: there's a lot of uses of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. I mean, it, actually, the spatial audio, the iden stuff. I I I think there's a huge amount of uses for that, uh, particularly in disabled kind of applications as well um, or even you know you if you think about a, 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 a in a warehouse someone doing, who's doing picking in a warehouse mm-hmm. being able to tell them hey pick the parcel from you know lot 42 with a direction to it yeah so that it turns their head towards where they need to go to yeah you know there's loads of ways you can think about using direction in audio to, to enhance the user interface I
0: think. yeah mm-hmm. you can see more people walking around the grocery mart asking where something is, and then their <laughs> their app will be telling them and we're...
2: Yeah, and, and, and the sound will be coming from the right direction of where the Exactly, thing is. localized,
0: That's, very cool. Yeah.
2: Um, and then finally, um, we've got um, um, this partner, Cyberon. Uh, they have a really nice, uh, I mean, this is a basic thing like keyword spotting, um, but the nice thing about their keyword spotting engine is actually that you can compose the language that can understand just from words that are text in a database. Um, so you can actually recompile the um, the 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 um, engine um, without training data of mm-hmm. you know those specific words because it's working on syllables um, and it al- allows it to kind of build a set, a training set, um, and retrain the engine um, quite simply um, to 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 understand this new keyword set. Um, and it has very low resource requirements. It's running at, you know, 500 microwatts, which is very reasonable for that kind of thing. You know, yes, okay, you can find better, um, but but it's but it's pretty good.
0: That's that's another it's big category. I know that people trying to, to develop their libraries with studios is a, an expensive and lengthy proposition to get all the accents and everything uh, covered. So it mentions global language support here. That's a, a massive issue. Yeah.
2: So we've got evaluation boards, which are now available that I said we're shipping out to to customers. Uh, We actually do our kind of evaluation board as the kind of sandwich stack up. Uh, We have a core module, which which has GAP9 on it. It has some memory um, uh, test points for testing power and things like this um, in an M2 format. We don't use the M2 standard from an electrical perspective, but we just use the connector. Um, And that makes it really easy to make a prototype board with GAP9 very quickly, your own prototype board if you need to. And then we have a kind of generic EVK board uh, with JTAG connector and a kind of expansion plug um, for, mm-hmm. for various different formats of things that you might want to add in. Mm-hmm. And then a really nice audio board with DACs and amps and our own kind of uh, amp design that we've done, which is a, um, a differential um, um, digital amplifier that can, can actually combine, can, can tack on directly onto our PDM interfaces. So um, it's quite an interesting uh amp divine design um and th- that that's available now and shipping out to customers okay
0: right. um
2: from a development tool perspective we have pretty pretty complete set of development tools so as we've mentioned you know the base compiler is gcc um uh, so you see c plus plus um, um um, and then we have, you know, obviously a de- debugging and programming bridge. Um, we, we actually ship as part of our SDK a full SOC simulator. So this actually simulates the entire chip um, plus MFAC peripherals around it. Um, super powerful. Um, it's, it's really nice um, uh, and combines with a profiler, uh, which allows you to visualize the running of your code on, on the device. So you can actually see, for example, uh, on the cluster, your code executing, so you can see the DMAs, how they're being used, um, the cores, how they're being used. You can drill down to actually exactly, you know, okay, at this point, there seems to be a gap here. What's actually executing there? Which function is executing there? And you can drill down, you know, visually, um, into it. Um, and GVSOC gives you about 10% error versus, in terms of cycle count versus the real platform. So you're executing the real code, you're executing the real compiled code, um, and, um, and you can actually even do things like simulate audio interfaces and have wave files pumped in through an audio interface and things like that. Uh, then from neural network perspective, uh, we have a number of tools um, that allow you to get from um, um, neural network um, environments like PyTorch, like TensorFlow, all the way down to, to GAP code, and then a load of different examples um, of, of different networks and different network types, everything from image to sound, networks lots of different types um to help you that and then this foundational tool which we call an tyler which is the kind of code generation um uh, tool for everything to do with moving data around the platform um so this is actually directly called by a lot of the what we call generators which are libraries of of, of different kernels um for for um, neural networks and then we have a complete audio tool set Um, including a runtime that allows you to actually um, um, process audio graphs across these multiple different resources. So things like
1: the SFU, the cluster and even code running on the, on the fabric control.
0: Okay.
1: Just quickly. Yeah. That term, uh, you know, audio graph and SFU graph. I'm not familiar with the term graph. Does that mean like a a chain of events? Yeah, exactly.
2: It's, it's basically just a chain of operators. I mean, we, we use graph a lot because it's, Basically, it's just like a, it's describing a sort of, you know, set of filters that are connected together, which looks like a graph, right? right. Um, neural networks, much the same thing. Um, you know, you have an input, it goes into a convolutional layer, goes into another into a activation like a ReLU and then another convolutional layer and then another activation and so on, or through different operators. And sometimes you have, you know, multiple paths through the graph. Right. Um, so it's essentially a computational graph and, and the interesting thing is that if you think about it, audio is that really. Um, sometimes you, you want graphs that switch on and switch off, but, but but fundamentally it's a load of graphs that you construct your audio path with. Um, and, and neural networks are the same thing. And in fact, you know, you know those graphs at the time where you design your application, what are they? You also know the size of things that are passing through them. And yeah. that's what allows us to exploit that and actually generate all of the code for for kind of passing things through these audio these graphs um, 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 at the time when you, you compile your program, um, and automatically. Yeah. Okay. So neural network people will be very familiar with things like TensorFlow and um, um, and and PyTorch. Uh, these are the two kind of icons here. Um, these these platforms generally have some kind of export format where they can they can spit out an, an, um, a graph um, of their network. Um, TensorFlow exclusively uses thing called TensorFlow Lite. Um, uh, PyTorch and several others use something called ONNX, which is an open kind of format for that. Um, and then we essentially have a tool which we call NN Tool, which does everything to do with quantization, compilation, optimization of the graph um, and spits out something um, that um, kind of glues onto handwritten kernels for the really significant layers which make you know, a big difference in terms of performance and, and also spits out C code of compiled versions of smaller kernels where it's not so um, you know, optimized or doesn't need so much optimization. Um, And that's kind of pumped into um, uh, the auto-tiler, which actually generates the final code. And then, you know, with loads of examples in this. this. One of the big benefits about our um, tool set is our ability to handle lots of different types of precision. And the reason why that's important is is that you obviously, as you you quantize more, you get more performance um, and less energy uh, used. However, obviously you you have accuracy problems, but if you can do that in a flexible way where you can kind of mix different uh, levels of quantization, uh, you can get a much more effective solution um, to to an audio problem. And audio is tricky uh, with neural networks. Audio is particularly um, neural networks which are sitting within uh, the audio channel. So they're actually processing something that someone's gonna listen to. Uh, That's obviously a much, much more challenging uh, then processing something and coming out with some kind of decision, I'm in a bus or I'm in a cafe or something like that where, where it doesn't really matter. You're not going to transform the audio for the listener. Um, but precision becomes very, very, very important uh, when you start transforming audio.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and then, as I said, we have these audio tools which allow you to map, um, you know, audiographs onto, our, uh, on, onto the various different resources which are inside the
1: processor. And that really concludes the presentation. Okay. Nice one. I'd like to start, to start of the talk with the comment that it's going to keep it at a fairly high level and, and go heavily into uh, memory mapping technologies. But that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, no, it's all very good stuff. Very good. Uh, I think some people I, I know myself, uh, I'll watch it a couple times. As I edit it later, so I always remember more after I've done that. But that was that was great, Martin. Um, any more questions from you, Simon? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, so everybody watching, we'll put the uh, the details how to get a hold of Green Waves uh, in the description below, and of course, encourage everybody to like, subscribe, and share. And uh, yeah, so Martin Kroom, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.